This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I hope in the 116th Congress that uh, the committees of oversight will focus on the rule of law and that their work will not be frivolous. It will be to restore the strength of law enforcement, uh, the protocol and practices that are appropriate with the Department of Justice and to be able to clean up corruption uh, in this nation. I like and respect Bill Barr. I know he's an institutionalist who cares deeply about the integrity of the Justice Department. Rex Tillerson didn't have the mental capacity needed. He was dumb as a rock. Federal prosecutors in New York have accused the president of criminal violation of the federal campaign laws. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. One of the most fascinating figures in the strange Middle Earth we find ourselves in during this presidency, with its dwarves and orcs and Ivanka as a goblin in elf's clothing, I can't get enough of James Comey. At six foot eight, maybe he's an ent. Is anyone with me in all this Tolkien stuff? Ents are those giant lurching talking trees? Anyway, Comey always seems to be in moral agony. He's Comey agonistes. Some time ago, Jacob Weisberg and I did a Trumpcast about Comey's book, Higher Loyalty, and we both agreed it's strangely mesmerizing because moral anguish is almost refreshing in a time when the ethical approach of so many Trump government officials is that moral code known as DGAF. My guest today to talk about former FBI Director James Comey and much, much more is Mika Oyang. Mika is a singular sharpshooter on the subject of national security. After a long career on Capitol Hill, she's now the vice president of Third Way's National Security Program, and she works, writes, and speaks on every major national security issue from the details of military personnel policy to electronic surveillance laws. And she also mentors women in national security. I'll be back with Mika in just a minute. But first, this reminder, it's been another hard week in Trump times. It's impossible to keep up, and it's just hard to keep your balance. We at Trumpcast want to remind you to breathe, stay mindful, and keep living your life, lest you end up like the author of this sad letter. To my beloved family, by the time you read this note, I will be gone. I can't say when I'll be coming back, but I'm sure you'll agree that I'm no use to you the way I am now. 
This afternoon, I gave my notice at work and checked into the travel lodge on Route 38, where I will live alone until this is all over. I ask that you not contact me. It's become clear to me that I do not have the bandwidth to be a husband, father, employee, or participating fantasy football league member until the Mueller investigation has fully played itself out. I can't think about anything else. All I do anymore is refresh Seth Abramson's Twitter feed on my laptop while refreshing Ben Wittes's Twitter feed on my phone, all while MSNBC is muted in the background. I was expecting things might wrap up soon, but when I saw the number of redactions in Tuesday night's filing about Michael Flynn, I realized we are far from the end of this. Beth, I apologize for not being a husband to you these past months. I am sorry that I shouted the names David Korn and Michael Isakoff during an intimate moment. I should not keep my copy of Russian Roulette on the bedside table. I know I forgot our anniversary, but it was Friday and I had to be ready because Mueller drops bombs on Fridays. I know I can't be the man you need me to be until I see Don Jr.'s stupid face as he gets indicted and then I see Sean Hannity's stupid face as he tells us Don Jr. has been indicted. This is all I live for now. Sadie, Dylan, Daddy loves you. Please stay focused on your schoolwork. I know I haven't been much help of late, and I've been saying it's because the new way of doing math makes no goddamn sense, but it's really because I'm usually focused on something Rachel Maddow said the night before. And also, for the record, the new way of doing math makes no goddamn sense. Please forgive me, all of you, but you must understand there's no way I can live a normal life and pay attention to anything else now that Mueller is actually filing things. I am like America, a shell of my former self. Only Robert Mueller can save me now. Eat your vegetables and pray for me. Sincerely, Dan, your husband and father. P.S. Roger Stone pled the fifth, and there's no jail time for Flynn. That means they got him to give up a bigger fish, right, Beth? Holy shit, this is better than Christmas. Joining me from Slate's D.C. studio is Mika Oyang. She's the vice president for the National Security Program at Third Way. Mika, I'm so glad you could join Trumpcast. I'm so delighted to be here. It does feel a little weird not to be sitting on the same stage with you, though. I know, right? Last time in Austin, Texas, that was fantastic. And we got to have coffee first and catch yes. up a little bit. And now we're going to catch up more on, I think, one of our favorite topics, leak and lion, James Comey. <laughs> Once yes. again in the hot seat, I still remember Comey Day, his first testimony as a landmark, right? Yes. In the unfolding Trump catastrophe. Yes. It was the opening act, really. It was, it was the opening act. What were you doing on that day? And were you riveted by every second of it? I mean, I was. And it was sort of the beginning of me, like, talking in public about stuff. You know, before this, I was like a staffer. So I just whispered in members' ears about things or, like, gave private advice to people. And all of a sudden, like, we have this national scandal and people started asking me my opinion. It was weird. But, yeah, it was like you're you're watching this thing and it's like, what is happening here? Right, right after they fired him. And then we have this hearing and there's all this drama. And you sort of think that the players are going to fall out of sight the way Monica Lewinsky did or that they're going to be silent for a long time. But so soon they were talking and James Comey was one of the first. So yes. everything's buttoned up and he's the goddamn FBI director. He's just a giant. And he's, you know, I never worked with him or met him. He seemed like so mute and dignified and contained. 
And then all of a sudden, this emotional performance about what seemed to be a harrowing experience with Donald Trump. Yes. Now, to be fair, I kind of knew that James Comey had it in him to provide this really dramatic testimony because before Donald Trump was really a blip on anyone's political radar and he was just some TV guy and real estate guy, I had been working on the House Intelligence Committee and we were witness to the first round of very dramatic James Comey testimony, which longtime political followers may remember in the Bush administration. The Bush administration had started this warrantless wiretapping program. And this is an Ashcroft. Ashcroft. That's correct. So Ashcroft was like, wait a minute. I don't think that this is right. And he was in the hospital and he was really ill. And the White House counsel, Alberto Gonzalez, was trying to pressure him to, like, sign these things. And he had turned over the powers of the attorney general to James Comey, who was like, this is unconstitutional. I refuse to sign it. And so there was this race to Ashcroft's bedside. Right. To try Death, and, deathbed, right? Deathbed. And, and, and Ashcroft had testified to us that he thought he was going to die. He did not think he was going to survive this episode. And Gonzalez is putting pressure on Ashcroft, who's very sick. And Ashcroft, to his credit, for all the other terrible things that he has done and people have criticized him for, in facing his mortality said, I'm not signing this. And Comey's your attorney general and you got to talk to him. And Comey had worked out with all these other senior Justice Department officials. If they made them do it, they were all going to resign. It was going to be like Saturday Night Massacre all over again, Mm -hmm. including at the time Bob Mueller. So like Comey tells this very dramatic testimony about like what happened that day. And it was like so for those of us who had taken this closed door testimony, we saw the power of the Comey testimony. And it's what really made his reputation as a guy who would stand up for the rule of law and integrity. Now, some of the people in the Bush administration don't feel that way. They feel like he was a little bit having a hero complex and like maybe he was taking too much on himself, which, you know, at the time we were like, you guys are just sour grapes thing. But fast forward to the 2016 campaign Mm -hmm. when Comey comes forward with his surprise announcement about Hillary's emails and a lot of people were like uh maybe some of those guys were right about Comey and like kind of taking on this hero complex as no kind of Washington insider myself that kind of framing of James Comey has seemed extraordinarily interesting to me it's not a pose you see in the industries in New York or mm-hmm. the industries in Los Angeles it's this particular kind of righteousness that tilts into hubris that I only learned about when I understood that Comey, who came across as heroic to me in the testimony, just because I wanted something that sounded remotely like the truth in his description of his meetings with Trump, and particularly the one where Trump asked him to let the investigation of Mike Flynn go, I was riveted because it was that familiar long-lost sound of truth to me. But it was also, of course, riveting. And later I learned from Matthew Miller, used to flag for the Justice Department, from people like you, from all kinds of people on Trumpcast, that Comey has this tragic flaw or is seen as having had this tragic flaw where he has an exalted sense of himself from his Reinhold Niebuhr complex or whatever. (laughs) You know, he's like this holy man, pious, who's better than everyone else who has as his autobiography says a higher loyalty, which is probably to God. He's on some kind of jihad. Yeah, I mean, like, it's very clear. But it's also interesting because it's not like he's just 
I am hero and I am therefore better than everyone. There's like this weird sort of humbleness about it. Like, no, no, I'm just a civil servant in service to the truth. And I'm here to stand up against injustice. And like, look, in this time, that is so valuable. But you also see in the 2016 election how that could lead him down the wrong path. And so there's this, you know, as he's behind closed doors with the Republicans and Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee, you know, I have these questions like what's going on in the room because Republicans are going to try and get him to try and say something terrible about Hillary Clinton so the president can try and lock her up as he's been yelling about. Yeah. And the Democrats are trying to get at this question of like Trump and obstruction of justice. And so it's like, you know, he's going to try and defend the righteousness of his decision in both instances, mm. but they cut in very different directions. That is definitely what makes the place he finds himself in history most fascinating. I will say that in the earlier shows, we've been talking about Felix Sater and Paul Manafort and the much the disreputable characters in the story, Donald Trump, of course. And once you've been talking a lot about their motives and venality and sexual misconduct, it kind of is nice to talk about someone whose greatest flaw is his moral anguish and complexity (laughs) about what's right. Um, Right. And, you know, we're pretty short on heroes right now. So James Comey is imperfect, but he doesn't sleep with porn stars and pay them off. And right now, today, that's good enough for me. Right. Well, I mean, I, I like a little bit more than that. Like, I'm I'm super excited about people who are committed to the rule of law and justice. And, yeah. like, you know, there, there are actually a number of people in the Trump administration who previously I would have been like, I don't want them in here. But, like, the standard has been so lowered. And, and even on some of the people who are in there and who are doing abhorrent things, it's like you're sort of really on the Maslow's hierarchy of governance or whatever. Like, you sort of feel like there are certain basics. It's like, okay, well— if you're not going to turn us into a total police state, then you're better than what we might get. So I'll take it, even though it's horrible. It's like this weird moral bargaining with yourself about what you're willing to take to sort of hope that we can muddle through this moment. So we're now on the knife's edge of another conversation that I don't think you and I have ever had. It sounds like you might be on the side of the so-called anonymous senior White House official who's piece in the op-ed laid out how he and a group of senior officials have kind of a detente where they agree with some of his policy agendas, but they try to save him from his worst impulses. And some people saw that as a soft coup. Other people saw that as kind of, yeah, hedging against some kind of global catastrophe and the best they could do and we should be happy they're there. What do you think about that? I mean, look, I would never choose to serve this president. Like, I can't put myself, my own integrity at risk to do that. But I kind of understand people who say, I have looked into the face of this thing and I see how much deeper the hole is that we could be in. And I need to try and preserve some basic governmental function so that when the next president comes, we still have what remains of America, like something that resembles America left that we can come back from, right? Mm -hmm. I think that there are a fair number of people who are making terrible decisions that I don't agree with, including, and I get a lot of flack for this, John Kelly. I've known him my entire career. Mm. And I've always thought of him as somebody who's deeply conservative, but with a real sense of integrity and service. And I find it mystifying. And I can't imagine what he's going through having to serve a president who is so contrary to everything that I have known about him. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I've heard that from other people. I was, I think, too shocked by his history at Guantanamo Bay for starvations. And then in the White House, his defense of Rob Porter, his treatment of Maishia Johnson and Frederica Wilson. He strikes me as kind of a sadist. But lots of people I respect believe that he is sane and also that he's leaving. <laughs> so, Well, which um, is actually, I, you know, I was just talking with some friends about this earlier today at lunch and like... He, we think that that actually could be quite bad because mm. Mattis, who's the Secretary of Defense, and yeah. Kelly have been very close. And like Mattis, I think, has tried to keep the military in the normal military lane, which mm-hmm. is focused on America's enemies outside the United States and trying to prevent them from creeping into this role, which Trump very clearly wants them to do, of policing inside the United States. Like Trump wants to send them to the border and wants to give them lethal authority. And so they let them sign out this piece of paper. But then Mattis said, I'm not giving anybody guns. So they have authority to kill people. But what are they going to do? Yeah. Right. Like throw MREs at people like the limitations on that engagement are low. Now, obviously, they're using tear gas and that is terrible and Mm -hmm. it's abhorrent. But Trump wanted lethal force and we're not at lethal force. And thank heaven for small miracles. It definitely seems as though Mattis is a thin military line against, I mean, I think the way that people, when they talk about the judicial system, are always watching Ruth Bader Ginsburg's health. You know, I also hope that Jim Mattis has the stamina and the health to stick around in that role as long as this nightmare rages on. Yeah, but I do think that Kelly being in the White Mm. House helps insulate Mattis from some of the Trumpiness where Trump's like, I think he's, Mattis is kind of a Democrat and concerns about that. The two of them together, I think, what we sort of see leaking out is that there is, in fact, a much deeper hole that we could be in that they're trying to talk the president out of. Yep. Perhaps their ability to do that is wearing off over time. But when you look at the things that Trump tweets and says that Republicans tell you not to pay attention to because it's just tweeting, it's just that he has people inside the administration who are stopping him from making those things possible. Mm, mm-hmm. But he is trying very hard. I think he would really like to make those things possible. The, you know, killing of terrorist families and lethal force at the border and the separating the children from the parents, which obviously they're doing. Mm-hmm. Prosecuting their enemies. Trump has got a whole list of things that are really violations of basic American values. It is interesting that the new nominee for AG looks like he's not so much an obstructor of justice as a expander of executive powers, that it's Trump's right now, well, he has two interests. He obviously wants to terminate the Mueller investigation or pull the power out of it. But he also, as you say, he's been very inhibited in what he can actually do by the people around him. And parenthetically, it still amazes me that he knows there are people around him trying to thwart him, maybe Kelly. And there was not some kind of paranoid ferreting out of those people and bloodbath following that op-ed. I think there are limitations to what they can do. And for all we know, it's a member of his family who wrote it. Ah, (laughs) Who knows what it is? But I think that he doesn't know who those people are. He's a distrustful person by nature. What is he going to do? Purge everyone. And he has such a hard time finding anyone to work for him. 
we really start scraping bottom of the barrel of people who just don't even know the first basic about government. Like there was this woman at the State Department who used to be like a wine importer who's running around doing all kinds of terrible hmm. political targeting that seems frankly illegal. But those are the kind of people that you could see him elevating. There was that whole conversation about elevating Acosta who'd done the sweetheart deal. This is Jeffrey Epstein's lawyer. He yes. managed the admitted child molester Jeffrey Epstein who hosted Trump sometimes at unsavory parties and was a human trafficker. His lawyer who managed somehow to get some sweetheart deal for Epstein, yeah, is a Trump favorite. Was maybe going to be the attorney general. And like even the acting attorney general who's talking about like, oh, I would definitely lock her up and, you know, I want to starve the Mueller investigation. Like there are definitely worse people that they could try and put forward than a person who's previously actually held the job in a normal Republican administration. I am sorry to say I don't remember his name. Who is this AG nominee? Bill Barr. Bill Barr. And he, I mean, my guess, if what he's most known for is a commitment to broad executive powers, he may be part of Trump's effort to ensure his reelection because with greater powers, he can lock in some of the initiatives that seem still popular at his rallies. Do you think that's the case? I don't know. I mean, it sort of cuts both ways, right? Like, I think Ben Wittes over at Lawfare tweeted yeah. something about how Barr had also managed a variety of independent counsels in the Bush administration uh. who hadn't been investigating their own administration and let those go through to conclusions. So I just don't know mm. enough about this guy to know how he's going to turn out. And frankly, some of these people change. Like, you know, to be fair to the people who are think that I'm terrible for still thinking there's a glimmer of hope inside John Kelly, mm. I knew him much earlier on in his career, and he has served the nation and— People often forget that his family, he lost a son in Afghanistan. Yes, and the people yes. that I know who know him, I, I haven't spoken to him since then, but that he seems different since then. And mm. I can't imagine what kind of personal tragedy and heartbreak like that does to a person who then is mm. put under tremendous stress. Yeah, proximity, I think, to Donald Trump is also very incredibly stressful. Yes. And, you know, he's said it's a difficult job and, and it, it's clearly a job that has made him a little bit crazy. <laughs> I mean, it seems to make everyone who comes near him a little bit crazy. Let's talk about another very strong person who seemed to have been driven crazy by Donald Trump, Rex Tillerson. I saw that someone tweeted today that Trump's always had a great deal of disdain for Rex Tillerson. And I really quickly bridled at that because it seems like that channel of disdain started with Tillerson. I mean, he <laughs> called him a fucking idiot and that was his first year in the State Department. What do you think about Tillerson? You know, it's funny. I think people were really hopeful about Tillerson. I don't know him personally. All my thoughts about Tillerson are secondhand or from people that I know who've worked in the State Department. I think... The challenge of hiring someone to run a large organization when they've only ever worked in one structure their entire life, they have a really hard time adapting. And I think Rex Tillerson is someone who came up in ExxonMobil for his whole life. Yeah. You know, just had a hard time adapting to a very different bureaucracy and leadership structure at the State Department. So even if he had instincts that one might recognize as sort of a traditional Republican Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell sort of sensibility mm -hmm. in the world – question how that would have manifested under Trump. But like, even if those were his instincts and his sort of thoughts on the world, mm -hmm. he just wasn't able to translate that into any kind of defense of his bureaucracy or ability to make it 
work well or really even making his workforce feel like they were valued. And he did a ton of stuff that was incredibly demoralizing yeah. to the nation's diplomats. You know, we were making this joke earlier today, but like diplomats really keep us out of wars. You know, we talk a lot about how much we need on military spending, but let's think about how many diplomats we would need to keep us out of war. Mm. What is that? We never talk about that cost. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Tillerson is somebody who I think may be a very smart person in other contexts, but just was fish out of water when it came to this. He's coming up today, of course, because he's just said to the Houston Chronicle, he's quoted as having said he's now free to describe what happened while he was Secretary of State. And that even though, as you say, he had extensive business experience running one of the biggest companies in the world, Exxon, and he had this a closeness to the Kremlin, who I think named him like a brother of the Russian Federation, one of their kind of strange awards. But what he says is, okay, so I'm just going to quote him. So often the president would say, here's what I want to do and here's how I want to do it. And I'd have to say to him, Mr. President, I understand what you want to do, but you can't do it that way. It violates the law. We're used to hearing stuff like that. But I mean, come on, say what? Like he he, he had to push back on. I mean, he's not someone who knows the ins and outs of the Hatch and Logan Acts and emoluments. He's not a career politician with a background in the law. And even he has to say to Trump over and over, and he makes it seem like every time mm-hmm. you can't do that. Yeah, I mean, look, he's got a whole department or like bureau of lawyers who are well-versed in international law who will tell him, Tillerson, that is, yeah. look, these this is what we can do and not do. And like, if you don't like the rules, we have to change them. And so this is how you go about doing that. So like, you know, and in a publicly traded company— you definitely have to listen to your lawyers. Mm-hmm. You can't be like, oh, I got some advice from lawyers and they told me if I did this, it was going to be a problem. And I went ahead and did it anyway. Like you're opening yourself up to massive shareholder lawsuits. So yes. in publicly traded companies, you listen to your legal advice or you pay the consequences. And here's Trump who has a family owned business and very clearly has no interest in listening to his lawyers or even consulting them because otherwise, frankly, on this Moscow Tower thing, someone mm. would have told him that that was a probably a violation of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. No and not Michael like, Cohen. Why did Michael <laughs> Cohen with his Cooley Law degree tell him? Anyway. Mm. Right. <laughs> and it, the fact that it fell to Rex Tillerson that even with some kind of broad knowledge of the law, I mean, it almost seems like what he was saying is this violates first principles of existence in a country with the rule of law. I mean, yeah. it was, you know, it's hardly fine points, I'm sure, that he was calling attention to. So this is, I think, a good segue talking about the State Department. The State Department spokeswoman, this is Heather Nauert, is the president's nominee for U.N. ambassador. Just as he always seems to find people who look like Whitaker to do the men's jobs, he always seems to find someone who looks like Heather Nauert to do the women's jobs. And <laughs> she looks like what she is, a former Fox News person. Yeah. And right. He very clearly thinks that this is the ladies slot in the Trump administration. And yeah. so he's sort of excited about that. To be fair to Heather Nauer, I think people had very low expectations of her coming in. But mm-hmm. what I've heard from people who have worked with her is that she actually reads her briefing books and pays attention to what sort of the advice is of people and mm-hmm. is not an idiot. She's not just reading cue cards. So in this administration, with the low expectations we have of them, that's probably, you know, a reasonable choice. It's like not like they're talking about Richard Grinnell, who almost started a fight with the Germans just from his language, right? Like she seems <laughs> like someone who can 
you know, be diplomatic when necessary. But she's been a spokeswoman, so that's sort of somewhere between PR and Fox News. But now this ambassador job, I don't know quite why. Is it because it's diplomacy that it seems to to Trump and even others like it's a woman's job? Is that or do we just think Samantha Power is the archetype now for U.N. ambassador? Because she replaces, of course, Nikki Haley. Look, we've had a female U.N. ambassador for quite some time, you know, uh, even back to the Reagan administration, Jean Kirkpatrick. And then Condoleezza Rice served in this role and Susan Rice served in this role and Madeleine Albright served in this role. We've had a lot of women in this job. Um, we have had a few men recently. John Bolton served in this job and so did Bill Richardson. So it's not like it's universally a women's job, but in our lifetimes, it's predominantly been a women's job, which is interesting. You know, the question with that is how much does Trump think of this as somebody who's actually making an influencing policy versus just reiterating the party line in front of a bigger audience? And when you pick a spokesperson – to do the job, what you're suggesting is I just need a mouthpiece to say what I want them to say, who's not going to challenge me in the interagency process. I'm not actually valuing their intellectual contribution into this. I mean, it sounds to me like a Sinclair or a Fox News presenter. (laughs) All right. So let's get back to Comey. What do they need to know from Comey that they don't already know? I mean, have these guys read Higher Loyalty? Have these guys studied his sanctimonious tweets? (laughs) I feel like I've heard everything I need to hear from Comey. What would you want to hear? Well, so the only thing about Comey that you might want to know is that there was a whole bunch of stuff that in the first set of testimony, he wouldn't say. He'd be like, I can't talk about that. That's part of an ongoing investigation. Right. I'm not going to talk about what the relationships were with the Russians or whatever. But since then, Mueller has revealed a whole bunch of stuff through his speaking indictments. So in theory, you could ask Comey about some of these things about these Russians and whether Mm. or not the White House knew. Did they relay them? What did he talk to the president about this stuff? Some of it he won't be able to answer, but there are a whole bunch of things that we now know that we didn't know the last time he appeared before Congress mm-hmm. that he could be asked about. And it might be interesting to know what he would say about them now that he's free to comment on them. He's changed his party affiliation publicly on Twitter, and he's encouraged people to vote for Democrats in the midterms. And he also is angrier and more sure of himself than he ever was. And he has all these fans. And I think he feels he was sufficiently contrite in his book and other times for maybe some hubris. I mean, I've never seen a guy that is as self-conscious as he is. In the book, there's this crazy story about how he hit his head. You know, he always telling you how how tall he is, six eight or whatever. But I came to believe that being six eight is a little bit like being three hundred pounds. Like it's just a, it is sometimes just a physics issue, you know. And <laughs> anyway, he hits his head on something on his way to meeting George W. Bush for the first time, and his head is scraped on top, and it's bleeding the way that like a scalp injury bleeds a lot. And he describes in meticulous detail leaning so the blood will fall out of his part into the rest of his hair. Because he's about to meet the president. And I mean, I don't know what it sounded like, except like a teen memoir about, you know, hiding something embarrassing um, physically. And and he's so self-conscious about the blood in his part in this whole conversation with Bush that you really feel like this. there's some moral vanity to him or something. Oh, yeah. I mean, he very clearly thinks about himself as the center of the action. 
Right? Yes. And like that's part of the hero thing. It's and like for good and for bad, right? Like he's it's sort of like the okay, well, what will people think about the thing that I'm doing? And like mm. that kind of conscience when you're operating for good is actually helpful, right? Like yes. I'm not gonna do bad stuff because I think I can get away with it and no one's watching. It's like, no, I'm out here and what I do matters and people are paying attention and like Yes, it's self-centered, but it's also um, a way of regulating oneself and one's behavior. So it's like, right, in comparison to Trump, who's like, yes, it's all about me, but like, I don't actually care what anyone else's reaction is. Like, Comey, it's about him, but he's always worried about what someone else's reaction is. Yes, yes. And in in that way, they are really interesting foils for each other. And then also Comey sort of being the aspiring Mueller. He is nothing like his repose, but he wishes he were. Anyway, I find him an incredibly sympathetic character. If he's angry or in a different mood or something, do you think he might, behind closed doors, tell Congress what many of the guests on this show say, which is, this is so fucked up. I mean, he'd say it in a Methodist way. <laughs> this is so fouled up, lordy. Um, but he would say, he might just say, the Russian connections were coming out of their ears, and Mike Flynn, as we now know, was like as filthy as they come, or at least with as much information as we can imagine. Um, you can divine from what, you know, Mueller has done with Flynn's testimony that Flynn was in the thick of it and this won't stand. I mean, I'm a Democrat. He, he, he might, you know, he said he's a Democrat. He's obviously outraged. Maybe he won't be as tight lipped as he was in his testimony or even in his book. I think he actually will still be really careful because okay. the transcript's going to go out there. He knows what yeah. that means. And also because Trump is trying to discredit him. Yeah. As a political thing, he, yep. Trump will point to the fact that Comey is now a Democrat. But in many ways, Trump drove him to this. Comey was a Republican political appointee. He was a Republican before all of this happened. Yeah. And Trump did all this to him. He was explicitly a Republican when Obama appointed him the director of the FBI. And it was sort of seen as a bipartisan nod to a Republican Congress that like here was a guy that Democrats could live with because he had so much integrity to be the director of the FBI. Yeah. I actually think he will still be careful because this is an obstruction of justice investigation into the president of the United States. And Mueller has still not said anything about the president himself a.k.a. Individual One. Mm -hmm. Like, Mueller has not made any allegations of criminality about Individual One in any of these speaking indictments, with the exception of saying, like, Cohen was discussing with Individual One, the president, this Moscow Tower project. Yes, yeah. Or And then someone running for federal office asked him to pay off Karen McDougal or whatever. You know, I gotta say, I think that Given how unprepared Trump was for the presidency, I sometimes wonder if this whole running for president thing was just a scam to try and get the Moscow Tower built. Like he doesn't wasn't actually interested in being president, that this whole thing was a way of trying to get the Russians to do a deal with him. Mm hmm. That seems consistent with what I've read. And I think then when he was elected, he may have thought. Well, I'm not going to be able to do Trump TV, but I bet I can still work with the Russians and this will be delayed a little bit. But if I give them even more, then they'll give me even more when I get out. Maybe. Yeah. Um, And uh, yeah, watching the movements of his business operation, I mean, the sub Rosa movements of his business operation or what that deal might be like is definitely worth doing. But yeah, his political and business aspirations are entirely caught up with each other and it makes it very hard to read. 
And we don't ask enough about what's going on with the business and what the developments are there. Yeah. And this is why it's been useful to have Norm Eisen and Walt Schaub and others who are just relentless on the subject of conflicts, emoluments, and the the business corruption. And I'm told that Adam Schiff with the new Congress and others in the Congress have been pursuing sort of investigations into money laundering all this time. Yeah. I mean, I think when we were in Texas, Schiff, you know, we're getting around. Schiff was talking about, you know, wanting to look into Deutsche Bank and some of the transfers there. So, you know, he's definitely interested in following the money and seeing where that went because, you know, and he said this once in a meeting we had where it was like, and this was about China when the president was trying to negotiate with China, both over tariffs, but also about North Korea. And at the same time, he had this huge infusion of foreign investment into a building that he was building in Malaysia. And Schiff was like, look, we don't know if his actions towards the Chinese are motivated by fixing the tariff issue, solving the North Korea crisis, Mm -hmm. or this Malaysia deal. And the fact that as Americans, we can't disaggregate which of the three it is, is really troubling. And right, like he Schiff's right about that, because if you can't say the Malaysia thing is definitely off the table, then you have some question about whether or not the president of the United States is acting in the best interest of the country mm-hmm. or acting in the best interest of his bottom line. Yeah, it always seems to come down to a crazy project that nobody was thinking about or that's counterintuitive. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's like the Trojan War or something. I mean, Helen of Troy, like the whole world is thrown into chaos because Trump wanted to build a tall tower. It just seems like. Um, right. And a wall. At a wall, at a wall, exactly, at a wall. Or did he even want to build the wall? <laughs> My guest today has been Mika Oyang. She's the vice president for the National Security Program at Third Way. Thank you so much for being here, Mika. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you. We have to catch up in person next time. And that's our show for today. Tell us what you think. We're on Twitter and we listen to feedback. I'm at page 88 and the show is at Real Trumpcast. And you just gotta sign up for Slate Plus. I mean, I don't mean to nag you guys, but if you want to hear this show without ads and all Slate's podcasts without ads, and moreover, support the journalism we do at Slate, there's no better move than signing up for Slate Plus. It's $35 the first year. Isn't that like what it costs to buy a tablespoon of sugar in most cities now? Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus will show you how to sign up. Slate dot com slash Trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. Steve Waltine performed today's sketch. And I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.